0: Hurricanes, hailstorms, tornadoes, and wildfires. These are just some of the weather hazards that displace families and disrupt lives. Many of us are familiar with the scenes of devastation these hazards cause and the recovery process for affected communities can take months, even years. In the most extreme circumstances, some may never be whole again. This may prompt many of you to ask, What's being done to reduce the risks associated with these hazards? To answer this question, the Insurance Institute for Business and Home Safety presents the Disaster Discussions Podcast. Join me, your host, Armand Brody, as I sit down with professionals in the insurance, science, construction, and resiliency industries who will help us explore the intersection of these hazards with the built environment. We'll bring you in-depth conversations with experts from across the country and highlight how science is engineering real-world solutions for home and business owners to create safer, more resilient communities. Join us for these discussions every month. And to make sure you don't miss an episode, go subscribe to the Disaster Discussions podcast on your favorite podcast app. We also invite you to engage with us on social media, to ask your questions, share your thoughts, and to learn more about the IBHS mission.
1: From the studios of IBHS, welcome to the Disaster Discussions Podcast. This is your February 2024 episode. Thank you so much for listening in, for watching on IBHS.org. This is a special episode. We're going to be talking about wind engineering, taking all of our research here at IBHS into an operational application of wind engineering with some special folks from the National Weather Service Columbia office joining us. I'm your guest host for today's episode. Christina Grapp, science producer and meteorologist here at IBHS on the microphone. Uh, Back with you guys, I hosted a couple episodes back in the very early days of the podcast and glad to be back here with our listeners and viewers once again. Joining me here in studio from IBHS, Ali Mary. Ali, great to have you with us.
2: It's good to be here again. Uh, thank you for having me.
1: Good. Yeah, absolutely. And now we want to welcome in our external guests. we got two special guests with us today from the National Weather Service office in Columbia, as I mentioned. We have John Quagarello, the Warning Coordination Meteorologist, and Matt Gropp, one of the forecasters at the office as well. Guys, thanks so much for being with us.
3: Thanks for having us. Yeah.
1: Well. For those of you wondering how these three gentlemen ended up all together in a podcast that uh stems from some severe weather we've already seen this year in south carolina in the southeast you can pretty much say our severe weather season runs about january 1st to december 31st any time of year we can see severe weather we've already seen that this year and that brought us the opportunity to build on a collaboration that we really uh started in earnest last year so IBHS has been uh committed now to working more with other sectors of the weather enterprise to help get our research beyond richburg beyond the lab and really interact with folks who can put some of that research into action and who use that research on a daily basis and that led us to uh work more closely with some of our local National Weather Service offices here in South Carolina. Last year we hosted both the Greenville Spartanburg office and the Columbia office at the lab. Ali, you've been to the Columbia office doing a presentation. We've had a couple of these different interactions, but one thing we said we would do more of is support the Weather Service when we had the opportunity to after an event. And unfortunately, Severe weather played out on January the 9th already, and we had that opportunity to accompany both Matt and John out on a damage survey. Ali was one of our wind engineers that joined them. We also had uh, Murray Morrison and Cora Packerel who went out as well. And that is going to be the theme of today's show. So with that, John and Matt, I want to give you both an opportunity to kind of introduce yourselves and uh, share with our listeners a bit of your background. So, John, why don't we start with you?
3: Sure. Well, thanks for having us. So I'm the Warning Coordination Meteorologist here at the National Weather Service in Columbia. And my main role is to be a liaison between the office and our external partners, emergency managers, media, um, really anyone that we might uh, might use our information in the decision making process. Also, another part of my job is to really make sure partners are prepared for events um, as we you know, approach a big hazardous weather event. So leading up to and during that event, my job is to make sure they're getting all the information that they need. And then after an event, I'm responsible for all the verification, So making sure, you know, we're verifying tornadoes or damaging winds and working through that whole process again with our partners in collaboration with them. So that's really my my primary focus here at the weather service.
4: Yeah, and I'm a forecaster here. So we have currently on station, we have five lead forecasters and seven general forecasters. I'm one of the seven general forecasters. So responsible for the day-to-day forecasts, uh, morning operations and things like that. Um, so we do a forecast out seven days and then do our warning operations day of, aviation forecasts, fire weather forecasts, those kind of things.
1: Well, Matt, that leads us uh, right into uh, my next question is going back to January the 9th. I believe you were uh, forecasting that day. Kind of Give us a, a meteorological overview of what happened, kind of set the stage. It was a pretty well forecast event.
4: It was, it was one of the better forecast events I can remember that at least had this kind of impact. Uh, we started picking up on the signals that there was gonna be a big low pressure system kind of moving into the Mississippi, Ohio Valley, really around kind of the start of the new year. So like eight, nine days out, kind of starting to see the signals, which is extremely far into the future for this type of event. And then as we got closer, there was a lot of signals that it was gonna be a fairly extreme environment that set up. Um, we had that really strong low pressure into the Ohio Valley And we had a really, really strong high pressure system off the East Coast too. So usually you don't get those two things lining up at the same time. So the pressure gradient that set up kind of between those two systems was the strongest we've ever had in South Carolina, um, at least for a 12 hour period. And because of that, we had a very, very strong uh, southerly wind, a lot of wind shear that set up. And this was all pretty well forecast, you know, day four, day five. So we started messaging that this was gonna be a pretty uh, impactful event. And then we kind of had a a typical cold air wedge that sets up kind of on the east side of the Appalachians when you get that high pressure system um, off the east coast usually the system's not strong enough to uh, at least the low pressure system's not strong enough to kind of scour that wedge out ahead of it but in this case it was so that wedge kind of pushed north and we were left with some fairly juicy air across South Carolina with a lot of wind shear um, and we knew going into it, we we're gonna have a lot of just regular gradient wind. So the winds out in front of the front were really strong, you know, gusting up to 60 miles an hour, pretty much across all of South Carolina. Uh, we also knew there was gonna be a tornado threat. Uh, we didn't think it was gonna be a big outbreak day where we were gonna have multiple you know, long track tornadoes, but we knew if we did have tornadoes, they were gonna be pretty strong like we saw in Bamberg.
1: It, that was a pretty unique environment with the, those gradient winds across such a, a, a broad area.
4: It was. It was um, it's right up there with Hurricane Hugo and the Superstorm of 93 in terms of the pressure gradient that we had, um, especially from you know, pretty much the Gulf of Mexico all the way up to uh, the Mid-Atlantic had that really, really strong pressure gradient. Really rare and set up for your classic high shear, low cape kind of environment for us.
1: So, John, on a day like that, what, what does uh, your role look like in terms of working with, with partners and making sure that message gets out from the National Weather Service?
3: Sure. So, like Matt had said, we we saw signals for this well in advance, so really we want to make sure we're communicating that and we're trying to get our confidence levels out. It's rare that we see something like that, like Matt was saying, almost a week out ahead of time. So, we start letting our partners know, hey, look, we have something a week from now. We think we might have strong winds, potential for severe weather. They know this is maybe something that's not typical. We have higher confidence in this kind of event. So, one of the big things that we do is make sure our partners are getting all the information they need to make proper decisions. So, you know the impacts, timing, uh, all that's really important. And you know, not only was it a severe weather potential, which was highlighted by the Storm Prediction Center well ahead of time, but we knew the winds were going to be strong. That has an impact on school buses here in South Carolina. So, we were talking to county emergency managers, um, school districts, su- school superintendents, making decisions on schools days ahead of time. Uh, of course, we cooperate a lot with our media partners and everyone else to make sure we're all on the same page, communicating the same way and the message is the same, so everyone you know, takes necessary action. And then during the event, you know, it's making sure that everyone's aware of what's going on, the seriousness of the situation, on the phone with emergency managers as we have those tornado warnings going out, giving them a heads up, trying to get damage reports. So there's really a whole lot going on, but one of my biggest things is to make sure that communication is there and people are getting the information that they need.
1: Yeah, and it's it's such a, a vital piece of uh, the weather forecast is is getting it out, just like we talk about communicating the research, communicating the forecast is uh, probably even more important as that's w- what impacts everyone each and every day. And those are messages that we strive to amplify at IBHS, too, as a Weather Ready Nation ambassador from the Weather Service, making sure that we're all singing that same song, telling people the same messages, especially in, in those last few days up to an event. So... We had the, the storms kind of play out that afternoon. And the next day it, it was t- time for the damage survey and, and you guys uh, from the weather service were, were the two on, on the Bamberg survey. John, can you kind of describe that process? I mean, you, you mentioned getting some of the reports from emergency managers during the event. You know, what is your, your process um, for a damage survey like that?
3: Yeah, so it's a really important process um, to really know what's going on. So we go out and the first thing we want to do is determine was the damage result of a downburst or straight line winds, or was it a result of a tornado. And for that, we really look at the way the damage occurred. So for a straight line wind or what we call a downburst event, typically all the damage would be down in one direction, which is really the direction the storm is moving, or might have a slightly divergent path. You might see trees kind of spreading out away from each other. That's a sign of a, of a downburst. With a tornado, Um, you're not going to quite see the same thing. You're either going to see that the damage kind of convergent toward the the path of the tornado or toward the track of the tornado, or you actually might see things moving in opposite directions or or cross-track. So we first look for that. And once we determine that it was a tornado, which we we did in this case, most of the damage was in one direction, but we did see some signs of convergent pattern of trees and some roof damage, which showed inflow pretty much into that tornado. Um, Once we determine that it was a tornado, we have to determine um, start and end points we get a path length we have to determine the maximum width of the damage and then we have to come up with a peak intensity and for that we have to look at various points along that track assess the damage and come up with a rating and that's what's used to essentially rate the tornado so it's it's a lengthy process we have to talk to witnesses that are out there we have to have eyes on the ground to the damage a lot of driving a lot of walking um, we could be out in the field for hours looking at the damage and we come back to the office we need to assess what happened out there, uh, look at radar, make sure everything kind of matches up, and then we plot it all out in um, a pretty much a GIS system with our photos, and um, and it makes all the information available to our partners. Um, so it, it's pretty much an all-day process doing these storm surveys. The you know the media, everyone wants to know what happened. So um, people oftentimes you know want information while we're out there, and sometimes it really takes a lot of analysis back in the field and in the office to really determine what happened. So a lot of times we can't get that survey complete until later that evening or sometimes even the next day.
1: All right, so that's where I want to bring in Ali. Ali, this is, you were one of the three uh, wind engineers that got to accompany um, Matt and John out on this damage survey in Bamberg. And while your research has done a lot with damage surveys and you've, you've looked at a lot of damage, this was actually your first time being able to be on the ground right after an event looking at the damage. The so, unique pandemic circumstances uh, drove that, but how was that for for you as a wind engineer?
2: Yeah, I mean, uh, before, during the pandemic, I was always looking at damage using uh, street level imaging. So I used to be sent the images of the neighborhoods and all that and build, you know, like street view and then navigate and then you look at the figures. But it's completely different when you go there on the day or right after, because first of all, you can't pretty much collect Figures mm-hmm. on street level imagery because the roads are still closed, uh, trees and power lines are on the ground it's pretty dangerous. So mm-hmm. we need to be aware even when you walk, so we can't even drive. And you see actual debris that's still there that needs to be lifted, and you see actual, uh, you know, other uh, entities, the emergency management, mm-hmm. uh, working on removing those. And uh, you know, as uh, scientists or uh, engineers, uh, we see in. All those pieces that, you know, like uh, came off the building mm-hmm. or sometimes the building that crumbles or destroyed, we see a lot of indicators or evidence that could lead to a potential scenario that the building uh, followed while it was being damaged. So uh, it's a valuable source of information and it, it's a time sensitive uh, thing, you know, like the earlier you get mm-hmm. there, the ideally you'd be there during the storm, but you know, it's unsafe. Uh, so the earlier you get there, the more indicators you have that are actually perishable with time because they will be removed. So um, yeah, as soon as I got there, I was a little lost because there were so many evidence here and there, mm-hmm. and um, I had to figure my own way to, you know, uh, build the track. To,
1: and that's part of and, I think yeah. the challenge for folks yeah. like Matt and John every day yeah. is there's there's so much damage. What do you look at first?
2: Exactly. So um, we got some piece a little bit about you know. What Matt and uh, John do when they go to the storm. And uh, that actually uh, is really valuable. I can speak for myself and, mm-hmm. you know, as a researcher at IBHS, because this way we actually relate to the damage that happens there to what we see here. and. With the collaboration with them, we see also like you know the applicability of post-disaster uh, investigations, what the logistics look like, mm-hmm. and uh, what the process is like, how long it takes to evaluate, and you know for tornadoes we use the EF scale, so also the applicability of that. So that was really valuable, at least uh, to me from
3: my end.
1: So yeah. in this particular instance, there were buildings damage and in South Carolina. We see a fair number of tornadoes that, that only damage trees. So, Matt, I know this was your first opportunity you had to survey a tornado with buildings damaged. Talk about that experience and how, how that kind of shifts perspectives a little bit.
4: Yeah, so it was kind of why I wanted to go survey this event, because I had not seen structural damage in person. Fortunately, there was no one uh, injured or killed with this, despite it hitting some, some fairly substantial structures in Bamberg. Uh, but yeah, I'd only seen tree damage. I've seen EF2 and EF1 tree damage before, which is pretty impressive in its own right, but uh, when you see what we saw in Bamberg, it was uh, kind of sobering, to st- like a barrel factory completely destroyed and a couple buildings downtown that were knocked over. Uh, definitely sets a different perspective there. And with these kind of tornadoes that we were expecting, that you know they're moving at 70 miles an hour, 80 miles an hour maybe, um, with that really, really strong uh, low-level flow going on. So the... The damage itself kind of it kind of looks like straight line winds at first and then you start looking for those little pieces of damage like oh this insulation was pulled back on the inside of a fence that that couldn't happen with straight line wind damage it can only happen with a tornado or these shingles on this roof were only you know blown off on this one side that would be inflow to the tornado um again things that just wouldn't happen with straight line winds damage so it was interesting to see the the dynamic and the connection there between the wind damage and the structures versus what i'd only seen with tree damage before
1: and you mentioned that, that barrel factory. That was a unique building that, Ali, I know you spent a good amount of time looking at because of how um, the, the factory came to be. It was an old automotive building with a new metal building attached to it, which then presents a challenge when you're surveying it because you have two different eras of construction, two completely different style constructions. And Ali, from your work on the EF scale, there's that that's not a a perfect building that that is listed out in the EF scale.
2: Yeah, so, uh, and also like from what the owner was telling us, it was, uh, it used to be, I think, a car dealership, and man and John, please correct me if you were, if I'm wrong, because uh, I think you were there too. Yeah. Uh, And uh, it was at some point attached to another building, which was uh, more of a steel Mm -hmm. uh, portal frame building. So if you look at them separately, the old one classifies, could classify as you know like an old building that is you know more retail um, or a small professional depending on the case in general the other one is more of a, a steel frame system so those are completely different damage indicators and then they were united so
1: and then uh, reality yes
2: uh, so it's not a building that you see you know like a la carte and you choose from uh, the F scale like based on, on the damage indicator you you have to look a little bit at where the damage happened exactly And, you know, we saw more like what the damage was. It was not the steel building. It was the retail uh, or a smaller, older building. And uh, being there helps a lot on actually identifying those differences. Uh, So it is a challenge about identifying not just the... uh, So to get to the wind speed or the EF, you know, there are a lot of uh, milestones that you have to achieve. Like, first of all, you need to identify the type of building. And Mm -hmm. that's what we mentioned then you need to identify the type of damage that that building sustained. And that's uh, also an even more complex or detailed damage because mm. you know you need to look at all the angles of the different uh, uh, sides and see where actually the biggest or or the most severe damage happened. And while you're there, you have some more information. You, you need to look, or at least your inquisitive nature leads you to look into those. Just try to understand and build a more accurate uh, scenario that the building followed to being damaged and by doing that you can also establish some resistance level that mm-hmm. defines you know how weak of or strong the connections were between the different components of the building and by doing that you lead up to the building the wind speed that caused the building to fail so um, it's not uh, there are challenges but you know uh, they come up and gladly you know when you look at the applicability of the EF scale it does play a good role at doing that we are even like working on uh, improving that to mm-hmm. be even more accurate or uh, let's say consistent across whoever uses it so
1: but we want to talk a little bit more about that, but while we're talking about the the sparrow factory, there was a great story coming out of that in terms of the, the communication side and the warning process that worked uh, Matt and john do you, you want to share a little bit about that story and, and that, that that positive that that came out of that
3: sure sweet so we talked to the um I believe it was the building manager at the time. And you know, we were concerned there were people in the building given that most of it was just totally destroyed. And he said, you know, they had sent their employees, I believe it was 20 employees there, or maybe even more home earlier in the day um because of the forecast. So um even though the warning pretty much came out just about the time the train was touching down, we didn't have a whole lot of lead time like we typically would like to for this tornado people were aware of it. And I think that was, again, because we're talking about earlier, we saw this event potentially seven days out. It was getting a lot of media coverage. Um, A lot of people were just prepared for it. So here he sent the staff home early. And because of that, it very well could have saved some lives. So it's, you know, people hearing these forecasts and taking, you know, precautionary measures well ahead of time is really what ultimately, I think, saves lives in these kind of matters.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It was such a a great story to hear that the the process worked. and, And that's, that's what we always hope will happen, even though we, you don't like to end up surveying the damage after the fact. But, John, I'm, I'm interested in your perspective. You're, you've been on a, quite a few damage surveys in your career. What, did, what about having Ali and wind engineers kind of accompanying you on a damage survey? How does that help? How does that benefit you guys? Because you're used to doing this all the time without us, but it was a unique opportunity for us to join you
3: sure yeah absolutely and first i mean our partnership i think is just incredible we've been able to do here in a short amount of time and already seen the benefits of it and i think um you know i'm not an engineer i'm a meteorologist so we kind of learned to do surveys on the job and we have the ef scale which is kind of meant for people that aren't engineers it's kind of help guide us a little bit i know we'll probably talk about this a little bit more later on but having an engineer there to actually see what they're looking at to see the failure points in a building kind of just builds up my knowledge and our knowledge as an agency. So when we have future surveys, yeah, I've never seen that. That's the reason why that happened. That's why it failed there. And like Ollie had mentioned, in this case, we had a building that was kind of two different structures built at different times. And even in downtown Bamberg, we had historic buildings from the 1800s with roofs that were just recently put on. So, you know, what was the failure point? What was the cause of it? And um, the more we see this, the more we get it experienced engineers with us to kind of point things out it really allows us to do a better job in the future now the interesting thing is um all of you at ivhs researchers so ollie and the team were out there really studying those structures for a long time me and matt we've got to go we got to figure out this whole track how long it is Got to do so, a media interview yeah like, I had media <laughs> interviews press conferences so it was great that the researchers could focus on those structures and we were able to kind of go see the damage and kind of move on. So it just kind of shows the difference between the research side, I think, and the operational side, but it makes us better as operational meteorologists to have the expertise of engineers there with us. We really appreciated that.
2: It definitely is a stressful environment. Um, <laughs> when you have to, you know, um, being tailed uh, by press and uh, media, and having, you know, to achieve all those investigations and get all the results out by the end of a specific time, uh, I kind of saw that. and. Uh, Yes, it's like you need to be also, you know, uh, build your own view of the, what the damage was like. So you want to take your time, but on the other end, that is not completely an infinite resource. So, uh, it, and having more and more experience, uh, not just in in you know uh, being there, but also in looking at those complex uh, issues, like you know having different buildings. Uh, I think. Uh, that that can be uh, solved, I think, at some point if we make a, a better standard. Uh, and 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 you know, uh, as engineers and scientists, we can we are always actively working on that. Um, and and that gives us an idea about you know how we can uh, come together better at providing these kind of investigations. And ultimately, it would be good to have it right away as an accurate mm-hmm. uh, visual without uh, spending. Too much time and I, like i said before it's a uh, it's sensitive people need to get back to uh, their community as soon as possible and you can't spend the, all the day
1: part you know. of though what you did when we were out there ali you and cora uh used a, a lidar to capture a, a point cloud of what was happening talk about why why that benefits you guys so that you can kind of continue work
2: exactly to that point because we cannot spend all the time there looking at the building so what the lidar does is it's it's a point cloud system so we put the lidar there and scan and it takes exactly everything that the light uh kept like reflects upon it so it's like a time saving uh thing and it actually takes a snapshot in time of everything it sees so this way, when we're looking at the LiDAR scan of the barrel factory building, for example, we can go and take a look at at least the dimensions. So mm-hmm. we can look at those bays and we know how many frames actually failed because we went and looked at the debris. So we know they were like about three or four rafters uh, I don't have the exact number off mm-hmm. the top of my head. But we do have, we can get that measurement from the LiDAR uh, point cloud because it's a it's a space saving so we can get the measurements, all of those with the scan. And if anybody wants to investigate or do a scientific research out of it, we can actually look and try and estimate what could be a a loading, a wind loading that caused that building to fail. So um, it's really a a good way to, you know, like store the data in, in a reliable matter because uh, no matter when you can go back and access that kind of data and look at them again and the building uh, hopefully will get back to business as soon as possible this way without having other people you know walking into and wanting to investigate further so I think that was a valuable source.
1: Yeah any other observations from the ground while we were out in Bamberg um, from from you guys Matt and John?
4: Sure I, I think it kind of going to the you know, the operational nature of us doing the surveys, like we don't have all the time in the world, especially with something like Bamberg, where the optics of it looked, I think worse than the damage was potentially with how it fell in downtown Bamberg. Um, There's bricks all over the street and people wanted answers as to what kind of, what did the damage, whether it was a tornado, um, whether it was straight line winds or whatever. Um, so yeah, you are kind of time crunched on that whole process, which was interesting. And, and in the middle of it, John's doing a press conference And yeah, as
3: Ollie said, it is sort of a stressful environment. Yeah, I I just think, um, you know, this was just one tornado. Sometimes we have outbreaks where there might be six or eight Mm -hmm. tornadoes, and it does take several days to do that. But I I like to think of these kind of as like being a detective almost, because, you know, radar might show that we had a tornado. First, we have to confirm that. And then we're really putting together all the pieces. We don't have all the knowledge, you know. We found one building was destroyed and later found out it may not have had a roof on it. So, you know, like the more you find out, the more the the puzzle starts coming together. So it really is we're working with a lot of missing information, you know, um, uh, structurally, storm-wise, you know, was it a tornado? How large was it? Multiple tornadoes. So you're trying to put all these pieces together. And whatever we do out there, we're probably never going to get it exactly right. I mean... Different meteorologists can see different things in there. So our our job is to be as consistent as we can and do as thorough of a job as we can at the time that we have. But, again, any kind of assistance we can have with engineers and other people to look at the data really kind of helps ensure that what we're putting out is accurate information.
1: And I think that's a great point, John. And Ali, something you've talked about is that the, the EF scale kind of helps everyone Across the the weather enterprise, from you know folks like you as the on the engineering side to folks like Matt and John out in the field, put you all on the same on the same page about about damage. Yeah. So. And you got to see that. Yeah,
2: yeah, and like you know, uh, I remember I was doing some measurements, taking some measurements with Colin Murray and uh, Matt and John, and uh, we're, we're uh, looking at the damage on the different building. And then at some point we crossed paths, and they were talking about classifying some damage, and I was like, yeah, that looks... Looks like yeah, the right. You know, uh, I would classify it the same way. It looked like we were using the same language. So, no matter, you know, uh, even if you, uh, John just said, you know, like, uh, you know, I have the structural. But I think, I think, you, I mean, it was there, and you classified it the right way. So, and and that was really nice thing, you know, uh, bringing us uh, with the expertise that we have, and that was the objective of have: skill to eliminate. Uh, the human factor actually uh, out of it, and based on the, if you have a scientific background, you can actually you know use that as a scale, no matter what the background is, and that was the ultimate objective of having a consistent, objective EF scale without um, ha- have allowing any uh, chance for misinterpretations. I was, I would put it this way, yeah. So I think that was a nice uh, experience. I don't, I don't know much about meteorology, uh, but you know. Uh, having you and us complete uh, the circle of investigation and actually connecting the swath mm-hmm. to the damage, and and I'm and I'm I'm a learner, so I go and access every now and then the data and look at the swath and uh, see where uh, uh, you guys place the uh, different points and documenting the track. And I think this is fascinating because ultimately for us, it's really important to connect uh, from radar readings actually to an expected mm-hmm. damage or at least the wind speed that can happen uh, because of that swath that you already are trying to forecast.
1: And uh, John mentioned, you know, kind of being uh, forensic, you know, putting the pieces together. That's something you don't necessarily have to do here in the test chamber when you're running research testing because you get to watch that cascade of failure, whereas it when it plays out in the real world, it's you're, you're putting the pieces together after the fact.
2: Exactly. And uh... You know, like as I was saying, that over there is more after a natural hazard, uh, which is a combination of you know from meteorologic aspect to the boundary layer of the wind field to actually uh, the damage itself. And uh, I think here is was the value, at least personally to me, because we look at damage here all the time uh, in our chamber and lab conditions, and we try to simulate as much as possible the real wind field that you see out there. So. When you actually see the damage mode happening out there that is compatible 100% with the failure modes that you see in the lab, this gives us reassurance. And uh, it's an opportunity also uh, as scientists to keep an eye to make sure that we are not missing out on any concept that uh, might be there that we are not aware of. For example, garage doors. We saw some garage door failures. And you know uh, I remember one of them that was in front of the... Uh, the barrel factory it had the roof popped up and this is something that we expect to see mm-hmm. uh, and we know why it happens um, so that was um, as a wind engineer and um, even even for the barrel factory itself when i saw the owner the first first question that i asked him was did you hear any window or door breaking because uh, the the way that the damage happened the roof uh, being lifted like that uh, one of the possibilities is if you have a sudden jump in the internal pressures and uh, it turns out it was this uh this is what exactly happened so it's um it's very interesting to see you know uh, for us at least as scientists the uh, mm-hmm. results in, in simulated conditions matched with the reality
1: no you talked ali about that you know, you thought the ef scale already put you and, and john and matt and folks in the, in the weather service on the same page yet there is an effort to make the ef scale even better and you're a part of that effort
2: uh yeah so um there, ha- there has been a lot of work ongoing for um mm-hmm. uh, quite a while even before the pandemic and uh, um, multiple entities and people academics from industry and uh, um, all different uh, entities are working on this and i i got the uh, you know the, the privilege of, of working on it to see actually how we can improve the scale and to see how to remove any sub- sub- subjectivity out of it. And uh, really, we used uh, a drafted standard uh, to see how it would apply compared with the legacy EF, which is currently being used. And uh, there are many interesting, interesting things uh, that uh, will hopefully lead to uh, even optimized consistency to eliminate. Further, the subjectivities mm-hmm. that or the challenges that can happen, uh, for example, like in rural areas, uh, there is, you know, there are less and less buildings. I mean, in our case in Bamberg, it was a town, but uh, if it happens in the middle of nowhere where there are very few buildings, now there is a damage indicator that is a church or, um, you know, okay. some things that you might not see uh, in in uh, the heavily urbanized areas. So there is that some addition. Uh, Filling the gaps Mm -hmm. of damage indicators. Uh, There are others which, uh, for example, seek to improve the way that you classify damage itself. So, for example, on a single family house, uh, a threshold of damage, especially in the lower uh, range of uh, severity, were percentage of roof coverage. For example, if you have asphalt shingles. And on the current one, it's, you know, if it's less than 20%, it is a degree of damage Mm -hmm. too. Uh, Now it's more of... uh, a fraction, so it became more like less than a quarter, between a quarter and a half. And uh, for uh, people, we are not computers, so when you're standing there, uh, it's hard to see if it's twenty percent or less, or if it's twenty-five percent or less. It's easy easier for us as humans to see a quarter or a half. Uh, so. of helps with that now for for ai's or computers that doesn't matter yeah but in 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 a lot of cases when you are pressed with time you are forced to actually use the scale and you need to produce some accurate uh assessments so that's that
1: now Uh, just that that's all in the future and that that work is ongoing uh our podcast listeners may remember back and uh we had a episode early on in the podcast with uh dr tanya brown jamanco and jim Ledoux uh from nist and NOAA. uh, talking about that uh, EF scale work so I encourage you to go back take a listen to those episodes uh, if you're interested in hearing more about the uh, evolution of, of where that might go in the future that, that that might change this kind of process in the future um, but it, in terms of the EF scale um, right now Matt and John kind of what challenges do you guys have when, when you use that, Uh, Ali thought, of course, you guys did a great job when we were out there with you in Bamberg, but what kind of challenges do you guys run into with it?
3: I think first, always determining the damage um, indicator could be difficult. It's not always straightforward, right? What is this building considered? Um, Yeah. You don't always have things on there, like Ali had mentioned maybe adding churches in case of this automobile dealership, what is the proper, or former automobile dealership, what is the proper damage indicator to use? What happens when you have mixed construction types? Like I said, we had buildings from 1800s with newly built roofs on it, which had failed. What was the cause of the failure? So first determining that, and then the EF scale. I mean, it's kind of made for I want to say engineering idiots in some ways, right? Because I mean, you don't have to have thorough knowledge of it. It's essentially, you know, you assume it's average construction. It gives you a rating for average construction, looking at the damage indicator and the degree of damage that occurs. We assume average. And then you try to find signs It was either above average construction, you know, was it maybe built in a hurricane zone where we know there was extra reinforcements? Maybe was it older construction built to older code? Or you have to look around a little bit, you know, how was, you know, the foundation secured? All these different things that we kind of have to look for. And I really don't have a ton of knowledge, but I, I can tell, yes, this looks like it's probably similar to all the other homes around it. Or, you know, this one. Uh, you know look how that roof was attached it doesn't look like it was on very secure and we could kind of adjust the ratings on there and i think it's pretty remarkable i think we kind of came up with our own assessment in bamberg and then we asked folks from IBHS, would you come up with wind speed wise we were probably off maybe 10 miles an hour or so 15 miles an hour on the ultimate ratings in various locations so i think it shows that the ef scale does what it's supposed to do um, you know, it may not be exact, but I think it gets us in a ballpark. and I think that's really the intent of it because we don't have, like we said, a whole exactly. lot of time in the field. So We're looking quickly. We don't have the engineering expertise, um, at least most of us don't, that are out there. So it's something to provide us a quick look, a quick estimate that's fairly close that someone, you know, just with a meteorology degree, go out there and, and really use. And it's nice to see that what we're coming up with is, is fairly close with the engineers are seeing as well. I mean, what's your take on that, you know, using the scale?
4: Yeah, I guess seeing structural damage for the first time. I know the, the new EF scale for tree damage is going to be much better. Um, I'm not as familiar with the structural side of it, obviously, uh, being the first time I saw structural damage with this event. But, yeah, I think it's it does put everybody in the same language, um, You know, even if it can be improved in the future, which is going to be great. Um, but, yeah, I think it generally works pretty well. We tend to be, I think we were a little bit high on our ratings relative to what you guys had um, in terms of wind speed, which was... I guess, to be expected um, with a less critical eye from John and I um, on in terms of how things were built and stuff like that. So
1: I think uh, one of the interesting buildings, John, that you've mentioned a couple of times, the uh, old uh, building in downtown retrofitted with a a modern roof, but the roof still failed. And Ali, one thing that we saw on the ground, those connections that we talk about all the time, the connections matter so much when you're tying the pieces of those those structures together and those are the the tiny little details you all are looking for when you're on the ground to know what kind of nails what kind of bolts though that's what matters i mean in fortified we talk about down to is it a square washer or a round washer that matters in terms of the wind resistance
2: right because uh if you have something basically with no connection it's kind of like a sitting duck just mm-hmm. waiting to be picked up. And the wind speed that will cause that is definitely going to be much lower than if you have a regular, or at least a stronger connection uh, or even like according. So the best connection is the one that actually uh, preserves to the design wind speed as the building is designed for mm-hmm. when using the, the ASCE standard, the American Society of Civil Engineers standard, which says this building should, should not fail or this connection should not fail Unless you have a specific wind speed, right, and the connection is designed based on that, and we know what the connections at least should be to meet the code, so when we see a a, a lag or you know an inconsistency of those connections, uh, it's uh, normal or expected that the wind speed that would cause that failure is going to be less than the design wind speed that is provided in the code. So those are uh, very important indicators, and uh, you know sometimes the 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 Older that the building is, the the it means that the building was designed to a previous code era, mm-hmm. right? And, uh, and in a specific time, there was a shift. So we kind of, uh, here at IBHS, we are aware when, when those shift, shifts happened. So we kind of know when uh, a building has a relatively better design than it, it was, especially like after the early 2000s era.
1: And we're only just now seeing into ASCE 7 the, the tornado wind load. So we're only just now going to start building buildings to withstand. And even then it's only a small subset of buildings, but that's a whole different podcast episode uh, that uh, we could go down uh, with with Murray. Um, but I think uh, we've covered a lot here. And uh, Ali, to kind of wrap up, you started mentioning it a, a couple of times, but how does, how does being on the ground with folks like John and uh, Matt, help further some of our, our work here in the lab that you that you're doing on the wind side
2: I think this is a very uh, fruitful collaboration at least this this was the very first application of yeah. uh, like you mentioned at the beginning and it's a nice way to close the circle uh, we did have a meeting with uh, uh, from uh, the Columbia office and from Greenville and Spartanburg and we discussed actually how we can collaborate see, seeing that our lab is actually in the area mm-hmm. in proximity which gives us the logistical flexibility to actually yeah. uh, go to the ground whenever a disaster happened so uh, doing that uh, like from the data that we collected for example we did store that in a repository and uh, right now like, I can give off the top of my head the example of the garage door that I gave. We did a lot of work on garage doors uh, in the past, and right now we are at a mature stage on developing uh, some kind of recommendation to improve building design, uh, especially for buildings that do have flexible doors. And that is something that is typically not seen in a scaled models in the wind tunnel, but we can, we saw that in our full-scale chamber because we replicate the model, the the components as they are with their right, flexible the system exactly and that's very important uh, because you know when you see this damage and we saw it in different events uh, after hurricane ike after uh, norman tornado all, and also more tornado so this is something ongoing and this is uh, from the deployment in bamberg this was a confirmation that this is a consistent type of damage uh, and it needs to be resolved upstream uh, and I'm really looking forward to uh, collaborating further. There, there are some different aspects of collaboration that can happen. For example, we did talk one time in a podcast about the PIP tower mm-hmm. that measures the pressure, precipitation uh, that happens in a hurricane. We are looking forward to actually compare the measurements that the PIP or the precipitation imaging probe does uh, with what other gauges do, like a rain gauge, tipping bucket, or mm-hmm. Percival. And actually see uh, what the effect of wind speed can have on each one of mm-hmm. those sensors regularly. And um, I, I imagine that weather service uses a lot of rain gauges. So, <laughs> uh, so um, I'm looking forward to uh, also having conversation on on that. And, and the conversations keep going. and you know, going when you establish uh, you know some kind of uh, collaboration.
1: Yeah. Well, Matt and John, want to offer you an opportunity to uh, provide any last thoughts kind of uh, on Bamberg and, and our partnership. And, and we want to say uh, we really appreciate our work with you guys and look forward to continuing it.
3: Yeah, uh, I think um, this is great work. I mean, one, kind of bringing research operations and maybe the other way around as well, I think is, is really critical. But I think we also have talked about ways we could work throughout the year of just getting public messaging out in terms of... Yeah. Um, safety messaging and how wind could have an impact um, on structures. And um, so I think there's a lot of ways we could collaborate together. Um, So I'm really looking forward to that. I think this is just really a start of a, you know, what could be a really good relationship beneficial to both. And um, you know, I I think, um, you know, hopefully we don't have to do too many of these surveys we have structural damage, but it, it does happen And knowing that we have the resource of IBHS up there that could potentially come out and and help look at, at things with us. That gives us a little more confidence that we're doing an accurate job when we're surveying. Um, it helps you know, teach us as meteorologists what we need to be looking for a little bit better. So I definitely feel more comfortable the next time I'm out on a storm survey without an engineer with me because I already kind of know what to look for and I've seen things. Um, so I, I really just think that the ability to, to train and learn from each other is, is just really beneficial. Um, and you know, I feel more comfortable, too, knowing that maybe the way we've done things is pretty good, knowing that, you know, talking to engineers and, and seeing the EF scale working properly, that maybe our ratings are pretty close to what they should be. I always worry sometimes, you know, we overestimating, we underestimating, just don't know. But to to know that we're using the scale the right way and we're coming up with roughly the right numbers, um, you know, leads to some confidence that we've been doing a good job with these surveys and hopefully just get better at them now, uh, the more experience we get working with each other. What are your thoughts about that? Yeah, yeah, sure. It was, it was super insightful hearing uh Cor Ali and, and Murray just
4: kind of like nerd out over structural damage, which was very interesting. Just the stuff you guys look for um, in the dispersion of the, the uh, debris, the failure modes and stuff like that was, was super interesting. And yeah, again, hopefully we don't have to do these too many times, but unfortunately it's inevitable um, that we'll have this type of damage in the future. So um, looking forward to it, tongue in cheek a little bit um, going forward.
2: And definitely gives me confidence also um, it's, not, it's not one way <laughs> so like the tree damage for example right um, now i am a civil engineer i'm not an arborist uh, but um, looking at the uh, current EIF, for example we do have softwood and and uh, hardwood right and um, i do have some knowledge about trees but i can assure you if i get deployed somewhere in the Midwest where there is a specific species of, of trees that I don't know, I, that would cause some trouble for me <laughs> classifying that. Okay? Uh, and that's something that is being addressed also in the next one. Like in the updated one, uh, the trees will be classified based on a different parameter that is measurable, which is diameter at uh, breast height. So that's something more uh, of a measure than actually of uh,
1: nature. That, yeah. that learning continues back and forth from folks in operations to folks here in research. Connecting the Dots, that's the whole goal of the Disaster Discussions podcast. That's so much of our work here at IBHS and I think a uh, fantastic place to wrap us up for today. We uh, thank you so much for joining us on the Disaster Discussions podcast. Remember, you can always find us on all your favorite podcasting platforms and be sure to tune back in next month for the next episode. We wanna thank once again, our guests from the National Weather Service, the Warning Coordination Meteorologist, John Quagarello and one of the forecasters, Matt Gropp, along with Ali Merhi, one of our research engineers here at IBHS. I've been your guest host for today's episode, Christina Gropp. Thanks so much for joining us and we'll see you back here next month.
0: Thanks for listening to the Disaster Discussions Podcast, an IBHS production. Subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast app or watch the podcast on our website at IBHS.org disasterdiscussionspodcast and the Insurance Institute for Business and Home Safety YouTube channel. Connect with us on our social media pages on Twitter, at Disaster Safety, Facebook at Facebook.com Disaster Safety, and on Instagram at IBHS underscore org. For more great content from IBHS, including ongoing research efforts happening at our facility, episodes of our podcast, and more, visit IBHS.org.